You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview thought leaders on all topics related to middle market M&A. Our goal is to educate entrepreneurs on the process of selling a business, from planning to post-sale and everything in between. Make sure to visit us at divestopedia.com. To see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business at the best price and terms. And now here's your host, certified financial planner, student, entrepreneur, and private business expert, Josh Patrick. Hi, today's podcast is going to be with Rob Slee. Now, Rob's an old friend of mine, and we have talked for years and years and years about the topic of how you become a $5,000, $50,000, or even a $5 million per hour entrepreneur. So let's talk a little bit about who Rob is before we bring him in. You know, he's an author, an investment banker, a mentor, and a business owner. He's authored more than 300 articles on private finance and a variety of legal and business journals. Rob has written five books, Private Capital Markets is considered the seminal work in financial private companies. And if you haven't read it and you're trying to do valuation work on private companies, you're probably not doing it right. I think it's the best book about how capital works for private businesses. He's owned equity positions in more than three dozen mid-sized private businesses and has mentored more than 100 companies. And he recently completed his first unicorn, which is a business that is so far out of the norm of value that it just happens once in a zillion years. He's a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Miami University, received a master's degree from the University of Chicago, an MBA from Case Western Reserve, which makes him one of the smartest people I know. And Rob is still best known as the father of Jen and Jesse, his identical twin daughters. So let's bring Rob in. Rob, how are you today? Hey, I'm fine, Josh. Thanks for having me uh, on today. You know, it's really a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Just finished your book over the weekend, and it's one of those books I think is a must read. Well, I'm glad you said it because I've been telling the world, I might as well say it on tape, that there's only two people in the world that could have written that book, you and me. I just beat you to it. Well, I, I don't think I, well, I might have been able to write it, but you have more legitimacy than I with it. So <laughs> I don't think anyone could have told the difference in the book. I think I think it would have read pretty much the same. So. <laughs> well, thank you. So in there, you talk about three of my favorite things, anyhow, that comprise a $5,000 an hour owner is culture building niche conglomerate creation, and business model transformation. Can you give us a definition of what each are and why they're so important? Yeah, it, culture is, it always seems to get the short shrift uh, from business owners in that they just let the market kind of set their culture. I think culture is probably the most important thing. I think culture eats strategy for breakfast. I think culture is just how the air in which you're going to do business, the environment and the expectations and how you're going to treat each other in business. And what we learn in the big breakthrough, because this book came out of a five-year mentoring exercise, was when we started creating cultures of, of value creation in all these companies. What I meant by that is that the owners can't be the only people who are thinking about value creation. And when we started getting all the employees to start working on their own hourly rates and their own hourly activities that created value, it all happened. That created the culture of value creation. So that covers value creation or culture building. How about niche conglomerate creation? I mean, first of all, what is a niche? And then what is a niche conglomerate? Yeah, yeah I start out most of my talks with my name is Rob and I'm a nicheaholic. 
and you know, everyone says, hi, Rob. It's, I know it's a, it's a little uh, dorky, but, but at the end of the day, I think all new middle market companies are amalgamation of niches. So these are those defensible little places in the market that how you find these niches is you just start asking around, what have you tried to buy in the last six months? And about the third time somebody says there, people say the same answer. Ah, I get this bright idea that I can go form a niche around that. They tend to be a uh, small revenue size, but high profitability. And a niche conglomerate is when you string a bunch of these niches together, you might consider that the metaphor is each niche is a branch off a tree and the tree trunk is the same intellectual capital. So all the branches are leveraging the same know-how. That's a niche conglomerate. So just out of curiosity, would you consider Apple a niche conglomerate? Yes, I consider Uber a niche conglomerate because there's an, a central truth about Uber and Apple. And then they just hang. Now, obviously, these niches can be multi-billion dollar niches you know, in the case of Uber and Apple. But, but yeah, I think almost all successful businesses in this new age I write about, transformation age, are niche conglomerates. So that's something that is important for people to realize that a niche, although usually less than $5 million, doesn't necessarily have to be one. Right. For us, for our purposes, because we're sort of the little guys in the market, typically, uh, yeah, it's going to be less than $5 million for us. But for Uber and Apple, obviously, it can be different. Yeah, and, and you can build something that has huge margins with these small niche conglomerates. Right, right. So let's go into business model transformation. What do we mean by that? Yeah, business models, how you organize to meet your goals. And what we found is that's quite a trial and error process. You know, I'm going to distribute two by fours and put them on a truck and take them to the job site. That That's the old traditional sort of model. Now that there's probably 10 different ways to organize every activity. And it takes a while to figure out which one's the, the most effective to the customer for most effective delivery plus least cost delivery. And I'm talking about product and services here. So business model has always been the toughest thing for me because I don't ever come out of the chute, out of the gate, knowing what's going to be the most effective business model. So once I discover a niche, then I have to discover what's the best way to organize to deliver that product or service. So how many business models do you think exist, Rob? It's an infinite number, especially in this digital age. Another way of saying transformation age is, is the digital age. What's happened is you can deliver a product or service any of a million different ways. And you might have the same product with a business model, which is a different business model in the U.S. versus Canada versus Mexico, because the process of delivery and how you organize around that uh, model are totally different. Yeah, it's not a might, it's a definite. I have a friend, and actually you interviewed him. Rob Rothman, sure. who has a niche conglomerate all over the world, and every one of his operations is like a completely different thing. Yeah, he was the star of another book I wrote, Midas Marketing. He had his own chapter. Yes. <laughs> That's how impressed I was with him. <laughs> yeah, he's a pretty impressive guy. <laughs> yeah, but he was, he was on the forefront of building niche conglom global niche conglomerates on a private side. We're used to thinking of you know conglomerates on the public side, but Rob, I think, is, is a forerunner for that. Yeah, and his conglomerate is markets. It's not products. He sells, right. sells the same product in about 15 different places in the right. world with 15 different business processes. Right, that's right. So it's really an interesting thing. So let's go talk about Nichaholic. I know that's how you introduce yourself, and I also introduce myself that way. What is it, and why do you find that businesses are so resistant to becoming real niche businesses? Yeah, because it's a trial and error process built on failure. Uh, the thing about a nicheaholic is that you don't wake up in the morning saying, aha, I know the niche and I know the the model. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. What happens is you get out in the market, you slug it out and you fail. And you like you and, you and I talk all the time, you fail fast, you fail cheap. Finally, you get a little bit of traction. We call it somebody's eating the dog chow. 
And well, are there 10 people that'll eat the dog chow? And, and most owners don't want to be that aggressive towards managing their, their business because it's an aggressive form of management, constantly failing and constantly attempting stuff that you know probably will fail. But true nicheaholics don't let that stay in the way because they know that's the path to building a niche conglomerate. And it's the only path is trial and error, as much as I hate to say it. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Also, I find that most business owners hate saying no to anybody who will pay them something to do something. Yeah, that's right. And in my, I don't know if this is your experience, but my experience is it's getting a business owner to say no that keeps them from developing a niche. Yeah, no, I agree with that. It's tricky. I think it all goes back to why most business owners, most being 80 to 90%, are in business to begin with. It's, in my opinion, it's to build a lifestyle, a comfortable, enriched lifestyle where they can hopefully enrich their family and do. It never becomes, never was, never becomes. Well, I think what I want to do is build a, a business, an entity that's worth $50 million and I'll do what needs to be done. It, it just isn't the thought process for most owners. No, most owners get in business because they're unhappy with something, not because they want to do something positive. That's right. That's exactly right. And so that just keeps going throughout their whole life. And after about 20 years of ownership in that vein, it's really difficult to change their spots and say, well, I think what I'm going to do is go into an aggressive form of failure. <laughs> it just isn't going to happen. I mean, I've never <laughs> met the owner who would do that. <laughs> so I want to move on to... The skills you can't learn in college, which is another area you and I have lots of conversations about. Yeah. Why is it to know the skills you can't learn in college and what do they do about moving to becoming a $5,000 per hour owner? I'm real down on the way we teach MBAs. I've written two textbooks that are used in hundreds of MBA schools around the world. And uh, so I'm in a lot of MBA programs speaking. And, and unfortunately, the whole MBA thing is taught for the corporate ladder, success on the corporate ladder. And my book's all about success on this ladder you create yourself, the value ladder. If you own your own time or business, it's a value ladder. Totally different proposition than the corporate ladder. I, I played both, and I'm telling you, they're two different ladders, two different sets of skills. Now, on the value ladder, it's a big street fight as you try to climb the ladder. And it isn't about what tie, color tie you wear and how you present yourself in a meeting. It's a lot of negotiating. It's a lot of, you know, nitty gritty sort of get in there and fight your way up the ladder. And you only go as far as what you're willing to take yourself. Um, you're not proving anything to anybody else along the way. You got to you got to make it happen. And so that just doesn't lend itself to formal education. <laughs> Those skills, apparently, because I don't know of any school that teaches them. <laughs> I would also submit that the business schools teach their students that there's unlimited resources, and if there's one thing that privately held businesses don't have is even close to enough resources ever. Well, that's what drives me crazy about corporate finance versus the middle market finance, which is what my the new field of study, my one textbook, Private Capital Markets, created. In corporate finance, the underlying assumptions are all invalid when applied to a private business. And I show this chapter after chapter. But if, if you come out as an MBA and I have an MBA, so I can say, you know, I'm not, you know, poking or throwing stones at, at other people unlike myself. And what happens, you come out as an MBA and you think all that stuff applies in the private side. And frankly, it, it will bankrupt you. It almost bankrupted me 30 years ago. It almost killed me too. It's just horrible trying to apply all that stuff I learned in MBA school. Yeah, that's by my experience. When I work with a business owner who's got MBAs in there, I, I say, well, we have one of two things we can do. We can either retrain your MBAs or fire them. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I won't hire an MBA. You know, I own all these companies. And, and frankly, I can't remember a single instance where I had an MBA working uh, for me just because it's a fish out of water sort of thing. I, 
they just don't like the street fight. They're not they're not equipped to deal with the sort of street fight that it is, you know, trying to, to grow a private business. Yeah, I actually don't blame the people. I blame the education That's they receive. The same here. They never stood a chance on Main Street. I, I tell them to stay on Wall Street, stay on the corporate ladder because that's what their skill sets are, uh, you know, their education is meant for. Mm-hmm. That makes good sense to me. So let's talk about mashups because I find that that concept to an awful lot of people is really pretty confusing. First, can you explain what a mashup is? And second, can you give us a couple of examples of how it's being used in private businesses? Yeah, a mashup is sort of a new word, I guess, is where you take several attributes and mix them together to form a new value proposition, so to speak. And it started in the music industry maybe uh, five or eight years ago, where musicians started mashing up several different styles of music to create a whole new sound of music, basically. Not the sound of music, but a different sound in music. Then business started using it for various uh, software programs. They started saying, let's take a little bit of this. And most of us would know it through GPS software, where you're taking several different databases. In some cases, some of that's uh, like crowdsource, where people are seeing traffic uh, stops and other things, and they're reporting that in. And another is putting maps within the software. And at the end of the day, the, the GPS software, and there's a bunch of them now, Waze, I guess, is probably the top one now. But at the end of the day, as the user, we just see the final product. What we don't see is there were three or four very interesting different, quite different programs that were mashed up and brought together. So we just see the mashed potatoes. We don't see all the ingredients behind it. And that's what mashups are. So if you were advising a private business, how would you suggest they go about thinking about mashups and how they could apply it to their own business? Yeah, I think we all have to do mashups. I, I think about mashups probably every day. And the reason is we're used to in business linear value propositions. And what a value proposition is, is answering the question, what's in it for me? So all your customers are constantly asking that. What's in it for me? Why should I buy your stuff? And if you just have a linear value proposition, so you sell them a two by four, well, you know, there's no way to really differentiate your two by four and your service from everybody else. But if you put three or four or five different attributes with that two by four, so you end up selling in this metaphor a framing package, or let's say you take it the whole way and you sell them the complete house. So you're working with the developer and you're no longer just an independent two by four seller. You say, you does that, you give me the design and I'll not only supply the two by fours, but I'll, I'll nail them all together and you end up with the full house. That's a mashup. And if you don't do that, you don't have any competitive advantage anymore. So you have to do mashups to have a competitive advantage. Okay, cool. So here's something that I find interesting is that you, when you, in your book, you talk about several different value chain and different roles from the owner. And some of them are worth 50 bucks an hour. Some are $500 an hour. Some are $5,000 an hour. And I'm not even going to ask you about the 50,000 or 5 million, but what kind of roles would an owner be playing in 50, 500 and $5,000 per hour work? Yes. And this was the big breakthrough in the book. Uh, It dawned on me three or four or five years ago that the market prices every activity in the market. And we're all sort of used to the under $100 an hour pricing because people who take out the garbage get, you know, maybe minimum wage or people that do bureaucratic work and collect payables or something, maybe, or, you know, $20 an hour. and all that. But it, it turns out it keeps going that the market of values is probably the better way to say it, all activities, tactical and strategic. So the $50 an hour is where is the beginning of the value ladder. And that's where the owner of their time, not just business, but we're talking about freelancers as well and giggers and this gig economy, the owner of their time is the value proposition. So if Rob Slee is a good copy editor, I would put myself out as a copy editor for, you know, $30 an hour, whatever it is. 
And people hire me, they hire the owner of the business because they believe that Rob Slee is a good copy editor. So it's hard to, to create value at that level, right? Because the dollars don't add up enough. It starts getting more interesting at $500 an hour where the owner, and now we're pretty much talking businesses now, is the creator of all these value propositions, not just to customers, but to all the other stakeholders of the firm, you know, employees and vendors. And you got to create what's in it for me solutions for everybody, right? So, so everyone knows what their role is and can do it successfully. But the owner is the monkey in the middle at $500 an hour. And this is where most owners are, by the way. They're at less than $500 an hour, but they're in this vein of they create the value propositions and they're the ones that have to deliver all of them. And so they never get away from the business. They're, it's like a tornado circulating around them, the business, and they're right in the middle. And it isn't as calm in the business tornado as it is, you know, a nature tornado in the middle of a nature tornado. And so, so that's 500, 5,000 is where real value creation happens, $5,000 an hour activities. And we talked about that earlier. That's that triad of culture, market, and model, bringing those together. So that's really what it is. And that's the value ladder. Keep going up each of those steps. And one thing that I've noticed over the years is that if an owner doesn't build to spending most of their time in $5,000 per hour activities, they haven't created a sellable business either. That's right. And that's what I say is once you get to that level, you have all the exit options available to you. Plus, your life's pretty good. One thing I don't talk about that much in the book but the fact of the matter is, the higher you go on this value ladder, so by the time you get to $5,000 an hour, and that may take a number of years, let's say, you know, nobody goes there day one, but you may only be working a day or two a week. And because there's only so many $5,000 an hour activities in any one time period. So most of the owners we mentored, by the time we got them to $5,000 an hour activities, they weren't working two days a week. Yeah, they were, and, that freed them up to think about stuff. And I know that, you know, when we've done this work with people, they typically start off saying, I need to sell my business yesterday. Right. And by the time they get to be $5,000 per hour, they get amnesia about ever wanting to have sold they their business. Sell. Yeah, they won't sell. And they, they don't <laughs> need to because, frankly, that's when they've met lifestyle meets business value creation. You can have both. And yet most of the popular literature and the people that talk about this stuff seem to preach that you have one or the other, one choice or the other. And I know you and I preach the same thing on this. So you can have both. You just have to institutionalize your know-how in the business, so you're not having to do every everything. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. So when you're climbing the value ladder, you talk about it not being an all-at-once thing, that you sort of have to go through stages. Nobody can jump rumps. And this is the big mistake younger people make. <laughs> and I'm not going to point at certain ages, but but a lot of younger people want to want to sort of be, you know, at that $500 or $5,000 activity without having really built the skill sets. Because what does the $50 an hour stuff do? It builds skill sets. So you, then you can make the climb up. And at $500 an hour, you're building systems around you. And at $5,000, you are you are sort of institutionalizing all you know in these systems. And you can't jump rungs. Nobody can. And I know it looks like on some of these unicorns like Uber and stuff I built that we're jumping rungs. We are not. Because if you jump a rung and don't solidify whatever the system is or the skill sets, you will fall right back down. So you may get to $5,000 an hour, but you're coming right back down to earth. You know, that fits in perfectly with all the research that I've read on uh, structural dynamics within companies, which is, you know, you have to sort of do stage one before you can get to stage two. Otherwise, stage two never happens. That's right. And that's what we learned, too. So as we were mentoring people up their own value ladders, what we found is, hey, if it takes a year or two to move from one rung to the next, that's fine. It takes whatever it takes. You'll get there. And typically, we were getting people up to spending most of their time on $5,000 an hour activities in three years. I know that that everyone can do that, by the way. That's not an economic DNA issue. 
everyone has enough economic DNA to get to $5,000 an hour, which is good. I think that's very cool. So we have time for one more question. And my question is, why is it so hard for owners to translate strategy into tactics? Yeah. And I have a kind of a postulate around this. Is it, is it possible that owners don't understand what they're talking about when they start talking strategies? Yeah, and this is what we found. What we found is we were early on in our mentoring program before we had figured any of this stuff out that's in the book. We were trying to paint strategic pictures with the broad brush and then hope, <laughs> you know, hope's not an effective strategy I write in the book, uh, hope that the owners could then sort of head in that direction. And it turns out that transmission between the strategic picture or the strategic endpoint and what goes on a daily basis is unknown to owners. They're not educated. They've never been trained in it. And that's what forced us to break all this down by the hour. So when you start reading the chapters in the book that are, you know, 500 or $5,000 an hour, what we would literally do is every week we would put the four activities, no more than five, but the four or five activities the owner was allowed to work on that week with the number of hours they were allowed to work. And that's how we translated strategy down to tactics for the owner. And then they would do the same thing and sort of uh, waterfall it down to all their employees. That was the only way we could do it. We couldn't do it by some intuitive sort of process. It had to really be uh, blueprinted out to that degree. Hey, Rob, thanks so much. I, I think we're out of time. So for all those listening, you do really want to get Rob's book. And the name of it is Time Really is Money, How to Work for $5,000 Per Hour. And Rob, how would someone contact you and how would they find a place to buy your book? It's available everywhere. Ebook and paperback on Amazon is where most people buy it. So I suspect that's where they should go. I, I hang out and I write a weekly blog on LinkedIn, free for everyone, called the Midas Nation Group. That was the name of the mentoring organization we founded five or six, seven years ago. Midas Nation Group. You can join that for free. And what will happen is there'll be some pretty uh, some high-octane conversations out there about all that we just talked about. So that that's what, how people get a hold of me. Cool. Rob, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. No, nah, thank you, Josh. It's good talking to you. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. If you have any questions on today's podcast, you can contact our host, Josh Patrick, at 802-846-1264, extension 2, or send an email to jpatrick at stage2solution.com. Until next time, this is Divestopedia Exit Strategy.